one good thing to come out of quarantine right here. Oat milk latte, homemade Revel roasted beans. I want to acknowledge something right off, right off the, the bat here. I know that you know that I look like a dentist heading off to a Caribbean vacation with my floral printed shirt and my ridiculous hair. Uh, you can just imagine not an oat milk latte, but perhaps a coconut sliced at the top with, filled with some delicious beverage that I'm ready to partake of, but not for the next 15 to 17 minutes because we have some things that I would like to discuss. Um, the last three or four weeks, guys, it's it's been heavy. You, you know that. I know that. Um, the sermons have been pretty focused on the issues that have been going on around us, um, the death of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and the, the reactions to that. Uh, we have attempted to stand in solidarity with our black and brown brothers and sisters. We have attempted to love our neighbors well, uh, whoever they may be, wherever we may know them from. Uh, we have attempted to engage ourselves in uh, both discourse and um, learning and uh, also in some, some action steps. Many of you uh, have gone to protests and demonstrations. Um, others are, are still trying to, to wrap your brains around this. And, and I, I love the connections that are being made between the faith that you have and what it looks like for you to follow Jesus in the midst of uh, political and national uh, unrest. And I thought that this week we might just turn a corner a bit and spend some time thinking about something uh, that would maybe like put us at ease a bit. I don't know about you, but for the last three weeks, I just feel like I've had this perpetual anxiety that has been taking up residence in this region of my body, and it just sort of sticks with me. Uh, that's that's not new, but the things that I'm concerned with, I think, are, are a bit different. So I wanted to steer us into a different direction and, and open up a, a short summer sermon series that would kind of help us to, you know, get just get a reprieve. So I'm going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk. And, and before we even begin, I, I want to give you freedom to pronounce that man's name however you see fit. Uh, my advisor actually in his introduction to the Old Testament has said that uh, some people pronounce the word Habakkuk, some people pronounce it Habakkuk, and some people that want to uh, appreciate and preserve the Hebrew would say uh, Habakkuk. So however you want to say it is fine by me. Uh, hopefully I will pick one and, and stick with it because that is actually his advice. Just commit to it and, and roll with it. So this is uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. Hopefully we'll, we'll go into a a new fresh direction here with our summer sermon series. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you, violence, and you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. The instruction, here the Hebrew is the Torah, the Torah, the law, it's ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. See what I did there? 
Uh, okay. Now, I did, I did want to do a, a summer sermon series. I didn't want to go back to John. I'll, I'll, I'll keep doing those videos off to the side. We're almost done. We're almost done. Uh, we've got about three chapters left. And I know that we've had 60 some odd videos, but we're almost there. And I didn't want to go back to John. It just seemed uh, distinct from what we were going through. And I was looking for something to dive into that would give us the opportunity, give me the opportunity, to nerd out with regard to ancient Near Eastern culture and context that would give me an excuse to dive back into my Hebrew Bible, uh, to, to wrestle with some, some translation and, and just, just celebrate all of the learning and where I landed was Habakkuk. It was sort of an accident, although I wanted to go to a minor prophet and I knew that minor prophets rail against the system a lot. And here we find one who is doing just that and calling God to task. So I do think that here we're, we're hitting two birds with one stone in the sense of Habakkuk is sort of immediately relevant to our situation. Even from the, the initial first four verses, he's crying about violence and he's talking about injustice and he's screaming at God that things that are happening should not be happening. Uh, and this book and our study of it, it also allows us collectively an opportunity to nerd out a bit. I got a comment a few weeks ago from someone, and this was before we, um, we started uh, thinking about all of the, the things that had been happening. This was before that, but they, they had said, I, I'm anxious for us to get back to the ancient Near Eastern stuff. Um, because with, with quarantine and COVID, it just seemed like it's not the time for a, a sermon series. But now I wanted to hit two birds with one stone because I do believe this book has things to say to us. And I also really believe that it allows us an opportunity to, to dig into our sacred text a bit. Now, I do need to further characterize my first statement. I, I would say that Habakkuk is sort of immediately relevant to our situation. I mean, it is from the 7th century BCE. I don't want us to forget that. It's going to be hard to, but I don't want us to forget the cultural and chronological uh, and linguistic uh, divide between us and uh, Habakkuk. There, there's, a, there's a load of differences that are happening here uh, that are not our issues and what the prophet is addressing and how God is responding are distinct to that specific moment in time. I would also say that it's sort of immediately relevant because this is only one word about injustice in the Bible. Uh, and here in, in this particular text, what we might want God's response to be to Habakkuk is, um, cool, man. I'm glad that you're finally asking me about this because I want you to go and fix all of the stuff. But this is not what God says at all. Um, the answers that God has actually are a bit less satisfying for us. And especially when we get to the end of the book, which is basically wait, trust, hope. It's going to, it's going to, like rub against the grain here for us because we want to do, we want to fix, we want to engage. And I believe that there's space for both of these things to coexist. Um, 
Yes, of course, we should be people of action. We should be people uh, who are working towards reconciliation in very real and tangible ways. And we also should be a people who are praying and waiting and trusting. So Habakkuk is, a, is an ancient text and it's one word on this larger subject. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of immediately relevant, but we're gonna have to, to, to do some work here, which leads me to a further characterization of my second statement, which is Habakkuk allows us to nerd out. And I would actually say it demands that we nerd out because if we do not, we'll have no idea what is being said and to whom and what it has to do, not only with us, but for them in, in, in this reconstructed uh, original setting. In fact, in the first four verses, what's he so worked up about? What is happening that is causing him to cry out violence and uh, to talk about how the Torah is not effective and justice is, is not being enacted? What's causing him to ask these things, to demand these things, to petition God on these things. Now, to answer this, we're going to have to tap into, we'll wait for it. Oh, you're not ready. You're not, but we're gonna have to tap into the geopolitical landscape of the seventh century BC. Yes, yes. I don't know if Tessa cut my intro of me drinking coffee or not, but I am. It's happening. It's right here on my table. And I think it's really impacting how I'm communicating to you right now. But here we are. We have to understand the geopolitical landscape of this time to see what Habakkuk is railing against. Now, you guys know, you've seen this graphic. It is not new for you. It's demonstrative of the two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They have two different kings. They have two different political structures. They have two different um, centers of worship. They have two different uh, political alliances that, that are going on outside of, of their own kingdoms. They're, they're different. And as they are in existence, I believe they started somewhere in nine, the 920s BC, uh, as, as, as they were beginning to grow and to become established as two separate kingdoms, um, there were other players on the world stage that were impacting those kingdoms. One of the most notorious that we've talked about a lot is Assyria. And throughout the eighth century, Assyria is the dominant power in the world, so much so that they eventually destroy Israel in the north, uh, completely demolish it, uh, because of Israel's sinfulness and other sorts of conversations that are going on there from, from the Bible. But uh, Israel has been dismantled as a kingdom. Assyria is looming large, and that's causing Judah in the south to ask very difficult questions about alliances and how to fend off any potential destruction. Uh, and, and this is something that completely covers the, the 8th century. Now, as world empires as it often happens, they don't last. So Assyria comes into difficulties themselves as the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire begins to emerge. Um, in fact, we see uh, Assyria 
in an alliance with Egypt, attempting to ward off the Neo-Babylonian Empire, who was led by a man named Nabopolassar in the 620s or so. And Nabopolassar, he just, he goes on this tirade and he begins to destroy Assyrian cities. He destroys Asher in 615. That's the old Assyrian capital. He destroys Nineveh in 612. That's the current Assyrian capital. And now we have a remnant of Assyria and Egypt. They're in cahoot and they're trying to, to fend off uh, the oncoming Babylonian empire and domination. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because it's an important moment in Judah's history. Judah has a king named Josiah. You can learn about him in 2 Kings, I believe it's 22. 21, 22, 23, somewhere in that range. Um, Josiah initiates a reform. He finds the law code according to 2 Kings and he begins to rehabilitate um, the land and get people to move back to following Yahweh. Part of this also, it engages him in this political landscape where he goes to have a conversation with the remnants of Assyria and, and Egypt uh, before they go to war with Babylon. Josiah dies in that altercation. And once Josiah dies, uh, things begin to, to un unravel. Uh, eventually, Babylon destroys Assyria and Egypt at the, at the Battle of Carchemish in 605. And it seems as though Babylon is looming and going to take over. And a lot of people would think that this, this is the backdrop to Habakkuk chapter 1. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you don't deliver us. All of the things that are happening. Josiah is dead. Uh, the, the king... The kingship is in disarray. I believe the king right after uh, Josiah reigns for three months and then an Egyptian ruler puts a puppet king in after him. There's lots of things that are happening here on the world stage that are impacting Judah that are coming out in the text and they're serving as the background for us to understand this. So when Habakkuk the prophet is saying, why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There's all of this stuff happening that's impacting his work. The situation situation is uncertain as to what Babylon is going to do and how Babylon is going to respond. Um, and also the context uh, of Habakkuk is uncertain too, in the sense of who is he angry with? Is he angry with Assyria? Is he angry with Egypt? Is he angry with Babylon? Or is he angry with people inside of Judah who in the midst of chaos and disarray are beginning to uh, lead in a way that exploits their own people. It's difficult for us to pinpoint that, although a lot of scholars would say that the injustice seems to be in-house, and Habakkuk is attempting to address this. One scholar named Abraham Joshua Heschel, this is actually the inspiration for Abe's name. I was really hoping it would be Abraham Joshua, but hey, here we are. We're still going to have that name change ceremony. Uh, if and when Abe comes to faith in Jesus, we'll, we'll change his name from Abram to Abraham, Allah, Abraham in the Old Testament. All right. Uh, he says, the prophet is distressed at the fact that violence prevails and the prophet is agonized by the thought that God tolerates evil. And some of the language that Habakkuk is using, it, it's, it's similar to other language in the Old Testament. Jeremiah says similar things in 
the book of Jeremiah, he says, if I took you to court, Lord, you would win, but I still have questions about your justice. Why do guilty persons enjoy success? Why are evildoers so happy? Or or later in that same chapter, in chapter 12, it says, How long will the land mourn and the grass in the fields dry up? The animals and birds are swept away due to the evil of those in the land. The people say, God doesn't see what we're up to. God doesn't care. God is not concerned. God has gone somewhere else. God is silent. God is not active in what is happening here and now. In, In chapter 20, Jeremiah says, Every time I open my mouth, I cry out and say, Violence and destruction. And Jeremiah is writing in the same context of of this Babylonian threat that is impending upon the people. Job as well is probably the, the, uh, the prime example of theodicy in the Old Testament, understanding what God's relationship is to evil, to the evil that Job is, is undergoing. He says, even when I cry out violence, I'm not answered. I call aloud, but there is not justice. Later he asks the question, Why do the wicked live on? Why is this not working? Why is the system of belief that we have seeming to unravel in real life? The righteous are supposed to prosper, not not the unrighteous, not the wicked. If, If we follow you, God, things are supposed to go a certain way, but they're not. And now we're all crying out saying, violence, it's happening, it's all over the place, and you're silent, and you're gone, and you're inactive. And Habakkuk is raising this complaint, which really, it's our complaint too. I think for many of us, we, we lodge these complaints to God that God is not being active in what we see in the injustices that we see around us. Now, right now in our specific moment, what I've heard and what you probably have heard as well is all we need to do is preach the gospel. And if people will just get saved, then all of this other stuff will work itself out. All of the unrest, all of the white supremacy, all of the inbuilt systemic racism, all of that, it'll just work itself out because then we'll have Christians uh, that are that are involved and and it, has, it hasn't. I think we can say that it has not worked up to this point. In fact, a lot of Christians that I know uh, demonstrate racist tendencies probably as much as, as others. It cannot just be if we just preach the gospel, then Jesus will fix things. Yet, oftentimes in our prayers, we seem to expect God to do something and fix things. And in that way, our prayer is not too dissimilar from Habakkuk's or uh, Jeremiah's or Job's. I, th- I, I think that we, we understand the, the difference here. And again, I wanna hold these things together where we have work to do And yet, also, we should be crying out violence and we should be crying out injustice is happening and it's all around and we need you to act. We should be holding these two things together. Now, one of the great beautiful things about Habakkuk is it's structured as a conversation. So in the first two chapters, we have Habakkuk complaining and then God responding. And then we have Habakkuk pushing back and then God responding again. And then in chapter three, we have this long uh, prayer. It's sort of like a psalm of, um, 
It's sort of like a psalm, and some people would think that it's just been appended on to the end to make sense of these other two chapters that don't really get us to a conclusion that, that we're okay with. So it's structured as this conversation, and I think we can pause right there and say the conversation, it must continue. I don't think the call is solely for you to go read all of these great books. I hope that you saw the new uh, New York Times bestseller list in the nonfiction category. Like 13 of the top 15 are all uh, race-related about addressing um, racism and white supremacy. And that's beautiful and that's encouraging. And hopefully uh, that is, is happening. But I'm also hopeful that we are having this conversation through prayer. And, and even if the conversation in prayer is just the protest and it's, it's the lament, I think that's okay in bringing these two concepts together. But also this, this conversation, at least in Habakkuk, it, it complicates things because God's answer is suspect at best. Uh, so, so Habakkuk is talking about, I cry out violence and you're nowhere to be seen and you're not answering and, and justice is, is not happening, those sorts of things I'm paraphrasing. And then God responds in verse 5 and says, look among the nations and watch, be astonished and stare because something is happening in your days that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. And you can see almost God like getting so excited. I'm getting ready to tell you something. You're not even going to believe it. And then he says in verse six, I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans. I'm about to rouse the Babylonians. Remember the people out here that are looming? I'm going to bring them here to deal with all of the stuff. I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation, which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. It's dreadful and fearful, and it makes its own justice and dignity. And this is like how, how God is unpacking his, his grand plan to which Habakkuk says in his best Josh Revel impersonation, what? Like Habakkuk has no clue what God has just said because it doesn't make any sense. God, we're calling out violence and what you're planning to do is to bring in this powerful uh, national empire to come in and, and to, to get rid of the injustice. And that seems like two wrongs making a right, which doesn't really seem to, seem to make sense. And, and Habakkuk is pushing back against this and, and we're left sort of with this uh, unsatisfactory back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And I think a lot of times we feel as though we have been left with this unsatisfactory back and forth between us and between God, perhaps because we're expecting things that we shouldn't expect and God is not delivering on those things, uh, or the things that we're seeing in the world might, uh, in our mind, be demonstrative of, 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 uh, of an application that, that we would say, what? It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. And so here we have this book here, Habakkuk, that's, that's just sort of embedded within the book of the 12, the book of the minor prophets. And it's just sort of sitting there and it's, it's, it's waiting for us to engage, even though our first kind of look at it, it's, it's bringing out more, more questions for us. And really, I think that we can just pause and, and we can be here for a moment. In the midst of injustice, what, what do we do? Who do we cry out to? 
Do we just sort of go and take care of business ourselves? Are we including God in that work? Are we expecting God to do something and then we're not doing anything at all? We just kind of put our feet up and say, I just, it's, people need to get saved. They just need Jesus. Or are we, how are we bringing these two things together? And are we allowing ourselves to have these hard conversations with God? Or is that just something that we talk about each week? Is that just something that, that sounds good that we don't actually do? So like when we're marching in the street or when we're at a protest, like are we also including God in that action or are we just doing? Or when we're at home and we're not engaged and we don't want to be engaged, are we just praying that God will take care of the things that we are unwilling to do? I think these are some of the conversations that are coming out of Habakkuk for our time and for our moment. How are we lamenting? How are we petitioning? Who are we petitioning for? And how are we involved in action? I'm hopeful that we're able to take these two concepts and bring them together. I'm hopeful that we are able to be a people of action, a people of reconciliation, a people of redemption, a people, yes, who are sharing the good news of Jesus, but who are also living that out in a way that is tangible, in a way that makes sense, in a way where our lives demonstrate the truths of our theology. And I'm also hopeful that we're not so academic and that we're not so far gone that we are able to lament to cry out, to petition, to pray on behalf of other people and say, violence, injustice, do something, be with us, work through us, be pleased in our efforts. And we bring these two concepts together of prayer and hope and trust and waiting and also action and bringing them together so that change can happen. Now, I understand that for all of you, you have different things that are going on in your lives. And while I don't want this to be so narrow focused that it can only be applied to some of the, the more dominant themes that we see, the dominant themes of, of racial inequality in our country, or these big conversations of justice and how it is not being enacted, I'm also hopeful that we can bring these two things together in, in uh, situations that are more personal and that are more uh, limited in scope. Because we're all dealing with things and the tendency might be for us to go and do and take care and, and not to include and to pray and to hope and to ask. And I, I, I want us to marry those things together. And perhaps if Habakkuk chapter one is is pushing that conversation to the forefronts of our mind, then, then maybe as we go on in this week, we can begin to include God more in the things that we are doing and not say, I'll take care of this. You prop your feet up. And instead, we invite God to bless the things that we are doing as we continue to fight for justice in our community and in our sphere of influence. Mm -hmm.